0: Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. So we're in the middle of a mini series focused on D-Day and have spun off to spend a few episodes talking exclusively about Omaha Beach. We've talked about the Fox Red and the Fox Green sector. And today we're going to shift a little further west down the coastline. Now, the Atlantic Wall defenses in Normandy and definitely on Omaha were impressive. But there were weaknesses. And on June 6, 1944, soldiers would find their way through the German lines to be able to attack some of these strong points from the side and the rear. One of those soldiers was 2nd Lieutenant John Spalding a platoon leader in easy company second battalion 16th infantry regiment part of the first infantry division who broke through the german lines and helped to clear the easy red sector. Now there were a lot of mistakes on D-Day. Some were harder to correct like a landing craft coming ashore in the wrong sector and we'll talk more about that later, but others maybe could be made right throughout the day like the naval bombardment. This is a heavily debated topic when it comes to the D-Day landings and I think The general consensus, at least, there might be some outstanding opinions, is that it wasn't adequate. The army was looking at previous landings in like North Africa and Italy that weren't nearly as contested or didn't come up against as strong of fortifications as we would see on the Normandy coastline. That's one of the arguments that maybe we weren't quite prepared for this. I don't know if I buy that because remember, we'd been landing on beaches in the Pacific for years now. Now, either way, what the bombardment looked like on Normandy was going to be different because it was a surprise attack, a little bit different than we would see in other situations. We were so concerned about the possibility of a German counterattack pushing us back into the sea that we really couldn't focus early bombardment from aircraft for days or weeks ahead of time on the Normandy coast at risk of giving away the position. So really, the preparatory fire for the landings started the morning of June 6th. Now, as a little bit of a comparison, well, let's start with D-Day. On Omaha Beach, a five-mile long stretch of beach, there was one battleship, two cruisers, and six destroyers that prepped the landing beaches for just under an hour. Now, they can put a lot of shells downrange in that time period. But again, one battleship, two cruisers, six destroyers, less than an hour. About a week after D-Day, the Battle of Saipan would kick off in the Pacific. They would spend two days shelling the island. The first day, again, similar size landing beach. On Saipan, it'd be about a six mile beach. On day one, they'd have 11 destroyers, seven battleships. The second day, they'd be joined by seven more battleships, 11 cruisers, and 26 more destroyers. Think about the difference in firepower. And they're hammering Saipan for days. So I think the fact that the naval bombardment didn't live up to expectations is a... Valid argument. I don't know that the outcome would have been worse if we would have lengthened that by an hour, two, or six. Of course, you know, armchair quarterback. We can always look back and and say woulda, coulda, shoulda. But on the spot, again, the commanders were concerned about a counterattack. One of the element of surprise: get in there, take the beachhead, and hold on. Now, it wasn't just. The, on Omaha, it wasn't just the naval bombardment that fell short. It was also the bombers that came in towards the tail end of the uh, naval shelling to hit targets, ideally be a little more precise in some areas, but they were flying perpendicular to the beaches. So as they were flying, they were passing over the naval armada and then passing over the landing craft that were starting to come ashore. They were still a little ways off the beach, but the idea was these bombers had dropped their payload just ahead of the, the troops coming ashore. In turn, the bombers flying at altitude were concerned about dropping short. You know, how how terrible if your bombs fall in the water and kill a bunch of the troops trying to come ashore in Omaha. And they held just a little bit longer. But holding and not releasing those bombs when maybe they should have, just to be safe, meant that almost every bomb fell sometimes miles inland, not even touching the Omaha defenses. Now, in the lead up to D-Day, many commanders believed that they would almost be walking across the rubble that was the German defenses, if there were even defenses, if you could even identify what was there anymore, right? The idea was the naval gunfire and the bombers would just decimate the entire Atlantic wall. They passed this on to their troops and, and you hear soldiers, veterans talking about it after the fact saying, how silly, we believe that. They didn't know any better. They maybe hadn't been in a situation like this. Even those that had fought in North Africa and Italy, they hadn't gone up against anything like the Atlantic Wall yet. They hadn't been in a naval armada like you saw off the coast of Normandy on June 6th. So it's not crazy that they believed it, but the idea was between the Navy and the Air Force, there'd be nothing left on the beach. If nothing else, if some of the German positions still held on, there would at least be shell craters pocketing Omaha Beach. It would provide cover for the soldiers coming ashore. Now, Second Lieutenant John Spaulding was a platoon leader, again, in the Easy Company, Second Battalion, 16th Infantry Regiment. They're coming ashore in the first wave. His job was to take the Easy Red Sector or start to clear out strong points in the Easy Red Sector. And unlike the other stories we've told so far, and unlike the rest of his company, in fact, Spaulding and his boat, his one boat, landed on target. They landed where they were supposed to be. Now, just to their east was German strongpoint WN-62. We've talked about WN, the resistance nests, a series of fortifications, mostly reinforced concrete, but trench lines, communications trenches, mortars, anti-tank weapons, um, artillery pieces, tons of machine guns, barbed wire, mines, rifle ports for the soldiers, usually manned with between 20 and 40 soldiers, Overlooking expected landing sites and the draws coming on and off the beaches where the Germans expected the Allies to try to move inland. They were right. That's exactly what we were going to try to use. The idea for Easy Company was to land west of WN60, strong point WN62, strong point 62, and come around the side. They didn't want to land right in front of it. That's deadly. But due to the tides, due to the smoke, the confusion, all of that. Five of the six landing craft for Easy Company landed right in front of Strong Point 62. Spalding was the only one, Spalding's craft was the only one that didn't. And, you know, when you look at where these landing craft came ashore in terms of the soldiers that are just sitting there waiting to be offloaded, it's luck. Right, Spaulding didn't have anything to do in most cases. Some soldiers could kind of point at landmarks and help direct their crews, but but in most cases it was luck. And some of those soldiers came ashore in areas where it was a little quieter. Others came ashore where it was a little hotter. And that was the case for the bulk of Easy Company when they hit the beach on Easy Red, kind of in the area right between Easy Red and Fox Green is actually where they hit. And WN62, Strong Point 62. Was one of the deadliest places to land on Omaha that day. There was a German soldier that manned a machine gun in that strong point who in his who survived, was was taken prisoner, survived after the war, claimed that he fired twelve thousand rounds through his machine gun that morning. He said he shot over a thousand Americans coming ashore. I don't know if that number stands up as much, but the twelve thousand rounds, it's both crazy. But understandable. I mean, he had target after target after target coming in, right in his field of fire. That German soldier is nicknamed the Beast of Omaha. Fortunately for Spalding, he didn't land in front of the beast. He didn't land in front of the Beast of Omaha. He landed a little further west, where there was just a little bit of an opening for him to move inland. Spalding and his team come off their craft about 200 yards from shore. They jump off into water that is. A mix. Sometimes it's two feet deep. Other times it's five feet deep and they have to wade ashore in this process under fire fully, you know, jackets, shirts, helmets, pants, boots, gear, food, rations, cigarettes, knives, explosives, bazookas, mortars, extra ammunition, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Just moving at baseline is a challenge. They're weighed down with so much gear. You throw them in water and everything gets waterlogged. They're barely barely moving through the surf. To Add to it, the shoreline wasn't consistent the whole way up. It's not like you went from five feet to four, three to three to two to one. It would have these dips. So soldiers would be walking around in knee deep water, take another step and be down over their heads. All of a sudden there were soldiers getting shot in the water. They were under artillery and machine gun fire the whole time they came in. And as soon as they hit dry land, as soon as they hit the beach and you want to sprint, you want to get to that cover because you or you've been exposed for 200 yards and, and maybe covers within sight. These guys go to sprint and they're waterlogged. Their pockets are filled with water. All of their equipment is covered. I mean, they might weigh two to three times more than they did when you account for their gear than if they didn't have any of that on. Think of how, think of the challenge that would be if you just need to move fast to save your life and you can't. God, Anyways, Spaulding and his men make it ashore. They consolidate. Well, as they come ashore, they come across some barbed wire and a, and a small minefield. They, they breach a hole in the barbed wire. Spaulding mentions after the fact that he hardly had to utter a word. His men hit the beach and knew exactly what to do. Use a Bangalore torpedo, torpedo to blow a hole in the wire. Moved forward to a slight covered position at the foot of some bluffs uh, on Omaha Beach. Now, at this point, Spalding decides we better call our boss, our company commander, let him know where we are and what we've done. Because he's looking to his left and right, and there's not a lot of people around him. He expected his entire company to be by his side. And in some cases, this didn't work out for units that got a little spread out and came ashore alone. Other times it worked out in their favor. In this case, it was kind of working out in Spalding's favor. He can't reach his company commander because his radio is broken, but it wouldn't have mattered anyways because as mentioned, the rest of Easy Company is getting pretty heavily pinned down by Strongpoint 62 at this point. Spalding surveys the situation, recognizes that he has about 27 men available himself included, and they start moving inland to where they see a slight opening for a ravine. It's a dead area. Dead space as in not necessarily covered by direct fire weapons for the Germans. What that means in a defensive position is you're going to have to have other ways to cover that. Wire, and they're going to have to move through a couple areas of barbed wire, and mines. Omaha Beach was very, very heavily mined, both anti-personnel and anti-tank mines. Moving through this marshy ravine that kind of cuts through the German line is going to be just loaded with anti-personnel mines. But Spalding and his men start moving through it, and miraculously, I mean, I I don't want to chalk this all up to luck because there's a lot of skill to identify those mines and find the right path through. But if you think about in the heat of battle, moving through a minefield where, yes, they're somewhat protected from machine gun fire, but not entirely. And you don't know where the German machine guns are or the riflemen. And somehow they make it through this marsh without a casualty due to the mines. It's crazy. I mean, this is the. I want to stop here and talk about the the American ingenuity, or how about the American initiative? Is a better way to put it. On Omaha, this was up and down the Allied beaches for for every Allied country. It was the same thing. Their junior leaders, but Spalding came ashore, found an opening, and went. His objective was not to clear a ravine. They were supposed to clear the entire sector, get rid of the strong points that are there, and. You got to feel for the soldiers like the rest of his company that land in front of strongpoint 62 because they have to destroy that strong point, and they're face to face in the field of fire. They have to fight the fight that they're dealt, right? That's, that's what they have to do to move forward, to survive. Spalding, instead of moving up or down the beach to find a point to take head on, says, here's a gap. Let's go. They move through the gap. And this is when you start to see the Navy maybe making up for the lack of bombardment earlier. Now, this wasn't the Navy's fault. I'm sure the soldier, or the sailors on those ships would have preferred to hammer targets for days on end before the soldiers came ashore. But what we would see here, especially in the E1 draw, Echo 1 draw, that Spalding and his men are moving up, is that the USS Frankfurt was, came in within hundreds of meters of shore and opened up point blank. Now this was risky for the Frankfurt and for the other craft that did up and down Omaha and Utah and all the other beaches. They were so close to shore with the tide coming and going that they were at risk of grounding. And if they grounded, there is an easy target for every German artillery piece within range of Omaha beach. But even if they don't ground, that's a huge target. I mean, you've got German 88s and, and, and artillery further inland, much further inland that are hammering the beaches, but it's going to be hard to pass up a destroyer or a battleship or a cruiser within range off the shoreline. I mean, they're certainly going to take some hits. And what happens if the Frankfurt gets incapacitated and, and sinks or runs aground, you know, covering half of Omaha beach, it could strand the men on the shore. You might have to move around to the left or the right. It could be catastrophic, but the firepower is needed. The fire support is needed. The Frankfurt doesn't have communications with men on the beach. This was an issue all up and down Omaha throughout the day. Radios were broken, the, or, or the person carrying the radio was killed. There weren't enough shore parties to really coordinate that fire effectively. But it didn't matter. The Frankfurt could easily identify some positions at the 300 to 400 yard mark, just as far as they sat offshore. But then they watched where tanks and bazookas on shore hit targets. So they would literally watch tanks and see an American tank fire into the cliffside, then the Frankfurt would adjust fire in that exact same position and hammer it with their shells for a few minutes, almost using the tanks as spotters. This was a big help in a lot of areas on Omaha, but also helped Spalding and his men moving through the E1 draw, or moving towards the E1 draw. Now, with this type of support ongoing, Spalding and his men charge ahead. They come across a machine gun position and... Relatively quickly, overrun the position. Find out the the gunner speaks Polish. He's he's one of the um we'll call him conscripted troops from the eastern battalions that were scattered across the Omaha beaches. They didn't make up the entirety of the Omaha defenses, but there were a handful there. They take him prisoner, and at this point, after overrunning this machine gun position, they start to link up with reinforcements. You know, we're making it sound like this is happening really, really fast, but there are follow on waves. And by the time Spalding and his men have taken this machine gun position, they're able to link up with George Company, Company G of their same regiment. They landed, and because Spalding and his men had cleared a path forward, the company commander led through that and linked up with Spalding at the machine gun position. Now to step back to the beach for a minute, there's a lot of famous lines uttered in and around Omaha Beach. But it's in the second wave that Colonel Taylor came ashore, the regimental commander of the 16th Infantry Regiment, and he wanted his guys out of there, off the beach. Just because Spaulding is making gains inland doesn't mean that the strong points have shifted fire. In fact, most of the strong points have no idea that Spaulding is through their line at this point, and they're still focused on stopping the invasion at the beach. So Colonel Taylor at this point comes ashore, sees the logjam, sees the dead and dying everywhere, And famously says, there's two kinds of people staying on this beach. Those who are dead and those are going to die. Those who who are going to die. Now let's get the hell out of here. There were similar comments mentioned by a general from the 29th Infantry Division a little further down the beach. A lot of times they kind of get mixed together. But nonetheless, it speaks to the fact that Easy Red, with Spalding already clearing his way through the lines, was still hot. But now this Spalding's behind the lines, he can start to sneak around the side. He doesn't have to take those strong points head on. He starts moving west towards what they believe is strong point 64, overlooking the E1 draw in the easy red sector. They're under fire the whole time. Sporadic small arms machine gun fire, moving through orchards, clearing more minefields, which again is, or I shouldn't say clearing, Maneuvering through, negotiating minefields. They're going to leave the clearance of mines for engineers after the fact. But with these strong points so focused on the landings, Spalding's almost like a hunter behind the lines and he's able to get some work done. They quickly overrun another small outpost with a machine gun. They kill one, capture two more soldiers. And as they move through yet another minefield, they start to spot strong point 64. Now, strong point 64 was still under construction and was considered to be a weak point in the German defenses. Rommel thought that it was too far off the shore to really be effective, that really strong point 64 wouldn't be able to play a major role in repelling the, the allies until they were a little ways inland. So it hadn't gotten the attention that some of the other strong points. Strong point 65 was just across the draw from 64, and that was a beast. You know, just if we move further east, we run into strong point 62 closer to shore. That was a beast. 64 was a little weaker, but you can't overlook the fact that it's still reinforced concrete with communications and firing trenches. Strong point 64 had a light artillery piece, multiple machine guns, and mortars. Was very, very well defended. Spalding leads his men to put a few bazooka rounds into the strong point. They quickly make their way into the trenches and start maneuvering through, clearing them out one by one. And by early afternoon, much of Strongpoint 64 had fallen. At the end of this engagement, Spalding's men, remember less than 30, had killed two to three Germans and captured 17. That's awesome. And by the evening of June 6, 1944, they'd linked up with the rest of their company, Easy Company, 2nd Battalion, 16th Infantry Regiment, Around Colville Sumer. Now, for his actions leading his men up that ravine off the beach and helping to destroy and overrun Strong Point 64, Second Lieutenant Spaulding was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. He survived D Day and would continue to fight for the rest of the war. He was wounded a few months later in September, but like so many of these incredible warriors, recovered and went right back to the front lines. But in February, he was evacuated for what was called combat fatigue, what we would today call PTSD. He was nervous, depressed. He was having nightmares. And in reading some commentary about him at that time, it sounds like he really struggled with the fact that he was recognized for his actions on D-Day and his men weren't, which you can understand. I mean, he was the the leader in that organization, the officer in that organization, but it was all of his men right by his side that were firing the bazookas into the strong point, or walking point to clear the minefields, or running through fire to blow a hole in the barbed wire so his men could move forward. Not to downplay Spalding's actions, but I can understand how he how he felt. And how he maybe felt that he got more recognition than his men and, didn't, and it didn't sit right with him. Now Spaulding would suffer for the rest of his life with rather severe, again, what we would call today PTSD. It would plague his marriage. And tragically in 1959 at the age of 44, he was shot and killed by his wife. An interesting fact to kind of help wrap up the story here of 2nd Lieutenant Spaulding, John Spaulding, the route that he took through the German lines, assaulting the strong points off of Easy Red Sector, is the site of the American Cemetery today on Omaha Beach. Now, the battles on Omaha varied greatly from one sector to another. I mean, just look at Easy Company here. What John Spaulding did his day June 6, 1944 was drastically different than even the rest of his company who came ashore just a little ways further east. And down the beach, an American general would come ashore to help clear the log jam. He was one of the most senior officials to land on D-Day and his leadership is the stuff of legend. That's next time on War Stories.